Well, it's that time for us to dig into the Word of God again this morning, as we do every week. And every week, I trust that you are prepared and exhilarated to uh, to study together, as I am. And I'm just as excited to bring the things that I have discovered in the past few weeks in this very important topic that we call the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, so take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5. And we're looking specifically at verses 22 and 23, but even more specifically, we're focusing on just the first phrase of verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is. One phrase. This is also the second part of our introduction, in case you're wondering. We do have everything published in the bulletin just for ease of concentration, but uh, we do want you to concentrate. So... uh, Let me begin by saying that both the ancient Hebrews and Greeks had a word for that which is produced by growth, and they call it fruit, and it's used to describe many aspects of life. We're not surprised, then, that the biblical writers actually used it with great frequency. They used it literally to refer, of course, to things like offspring, in Genesis 30, verse 2, the fruit of the womb, or in Deuteronomy 28, 4, the fruit of cattle. It was also their word for crops, which makes sense. Leviticus 23, 39, the fruit of the land. It takes, a, it takes on a, a more metaphorical meaning, though, in other places and with a variety of meanings. Warmth in Deuteronomy 33, 14, the fruit of the sun. Uh, the resurrected in Romans 8.29, of which Jesus is the first. Moral excellence in Ephesians 5.9, the fruit of light. Words and actions in Matthew 12.33, the tree, of no, uh, the tree was, is known by its fruit, Jesus says. Praise is also a fruit, Hebrews 13.15, the fruit of lips. A good reputation we find in Proverbs 31.16, and rewards in Isaiah 3.10, the fruit of their actions. Converts is actually fruit in John 4.36. Jesus said, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the one who sows and the one who reaps may rejoice together. Now, this term fruit didn't just describe the many aspects of life. In most biblical contexts, it's meant to convey spiritual truth that calls believers to obedience and right living. As in Deuteronomy 26, verse 2, one example, the passage there says, The first of all the produce of the ground which you bring in from your land and that the Lord your God gives you. Moses uses fruit here with the idea of the best or the most important, which, is a, which in agricultural context would refer, of course, to the yield, the first yield of the crops. God commanded Israel to give him the first yield of their labor before they or anyone would benefit from them. The first of something along with the right of something in the ancient world is the best of something. Fruit in this context then speaks more broadly of the best that one has. And this is a concept that rarely is spoken of in churches, but it's so important for the church today. God still demands the best from his people. 
But how, are, how often are we guilty of giving him the leftovers? Leftovers of our time and energy and efforts and thought life. We give God the seconds, the less than acceptable fruit, some that are withering a bit. Some of us might think that because we're in Christ and have imputed righteousness and holiness, it really doesn't matter what we give God, but that's simply not true. He's forgiven us, yes, but still commands us to confess our sin to him, right? He's sovereign and ordained our lives to the minutest detail, but still calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He still commands us to display that holiness even though he has given us Christ's righteousness and holiness. And when it comes to giving God our best, that there is little question that this is a great theme in the New Testament and it should be in our lives as well. This is why Paul spoke of our works as an investment in the kingdom and why the New Testament gives us a work ethic that is better than anyone out there. God calls us calls us to give 100% of our effort in the work, in the workplace, regardless of who we work for. And when it comes to our thought life, God tells us how we are to even think. Think of things above where Christ is seated, Paul says. And regarding our time on earth, we're to redeem it. And our bodies, well, we're to glorify God with them because he bought them. And we're to give thanks to God in everything. We're to pray without ceasing. You can see how this concept affects our entire walk with Christ. Do you give your best to God in worship? How do you prepare for worship the night before, the week before? Do you give your best to God in a way that you care for your body? in your deportment, the way you carry yourself, how you run your business, or relate to others, thinking of their interests as more important than your own. How about your offering? Are they sacrificial and given with joy? Do you give God a percentage of your income based on your gross income or on your net? What's the difference? Well, you want to make sure that you give God the first of your yield before you give it to Uncle Sam. Maybe you've not realized until now just how versatile this word fruit has become in theology. And we'll see more proof of this as we make our way through Galatians chapter 5, verses two and, uh, 22 and 23. We discussed in part, uh, part one rather, of our introduction, some of the reasons for studying the fruit of the Spirit, of what value it is to us. And we noted that every person, both believer and unbeliever, produces some kind of fruit, whether he likes it or not, wants to or not, or, or thinks he does or not. Everyone produces fruit that is in keeping with his nature, we also pointed out. But we said, we said good fruit could be counterfeited. And born-again believers produce good fruit. They also produce bad fruit, but more infrequently as they mature. And finally, God will judge everyone at the end of time according to their fruit. Now this morning we ease into the part two of our introduction by focusing our attention more specifically on the nature of the fruit of the Spirit. What is it exactly? Why, 
What, what should we be thinking? What are we talking about when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit? Well, I have three answers to those questions. The first one goes like this. It is fruit that is generated by the Holy Spirit and therefore spiritual. It's generated by the Holy Spirit and it is therefore spiritual. Spirit refers to the Holy Spirit in this verse. In fact, the word spirit should be capitalized in your version. If it isn't, then, then just write in a capital S. The grammar of the phrase shows in the first place that this fruit is sourced in him. It's established in the Holy Spirit. He produces it. We could translate the phrase fruit that is produced by the Spirit. And so we're talking about something that is obviously spiritual in nature. It's divine, supernatural, because it comes from the Holy Spirit himself. That's simply... Uh, that's simple enough, as the second answer is as well. And the second answer is, it is fruit that is unique to the Holy Spirit and therefore found only in Him. Now, something may be sourced in many places. You can get a can of soda from the grocery store, someone's fridge, or a machine. Or if you have a leaky ceiling in the second floor of your house, it means that water's coming from above. Is it a hole in the roof? Is it a leaky pipe? Well, you need to find the source and fix it there. And when we talk about the spiritual fruit that the Holy Spirit produces, Paul makes it quite clear that this fruit is sourced in the Holy Spirit and in no other place. It's unique to the Spirit. It's characteristic of Him. One cannot obtain this fruit elsewhere, but from the Holy Spirit only. It certainly cannot be found in the world because it doesn't belong to the world. It's otherworldly, and specifically from the Holy Spirit. Now, that's an astounding truth, and it's confirmed by the fact that every piece of fruit is missing in the world, even though it's highly sought after and desired here. I want you to think through this with me. Take love, for example. How often do we hear of People's desire for true love. Well, quite a bit. People long to be loved. They long to love someone, to have some kind of love relationship with someone else. After all, that's how God made us, as social beings. Now, the more popular songs in every generation of this country seems to be about love. Love me tender, all you need is love, and so on. And the love that the world manufactures Well, it's not the same love that the Holy Spirit produces. As we'll learn later, love that comes from a worldly, secular, fallen source is really a selfish, introverted kind of affection with no enduring quality. This is why the love that the world knows is here today and gone tomorrow, something you can lose just as fast as you can find and something that you can fall into and out of. Biblical love is not like that. We could say the same about joy. That's also quite in demand. All I really want to be is happy. Is there anything wrong with that? Is that asking too much? But in this crazy world of illness and disease, terrorism, war tragedies, bad economy, happiness is hard to come by. And that's because for the non-Christian, joy comes from 
again, a worldly, secular, fallen source that makes it dependent upon circumstance and lasts only as long as the context that generates and cultivates it does. Not so with biblical joy. Patience and kindness that come from the same worldly, secular, fallen source is likewise conditional. It's seasonal. And that's different for everyone. You would think that with the holidays, especially Christmas right around the corner, it's a time for good cheer. But think again. Instead, there's rushing and hustling and a good deal of impatient, mean people screaming at each other in long lines at the department store. Well, for those who still go to department stores, I guess, not so with biblical patience and kindness. Self-control, another sought-after demeanor, especially in light of the remarkable instances of the school and church shootings, riots in the streets where people kill other people and rob stores and burn municipal buildings to the ground. Adult road rage abounds, dads killing unfair sports coaches, and so on. Self-control that comes from a worldly, secular, fallen source is very different from that which comes from the Holy Spirit. And I might add, in every case, it is inferior to the spiritual, tr spiritual fruit. Now, we'll discuss just how different the individual fruit of the Spirit is from its worldly counterpart in time. For now, let's understand that the counterfeit fruit that comes from a worldly, secular, fallen source is not the same, and it has no enduring quality to it. The eternal Spirit of God, only He, produces a very different kind of fruit. It's unique to Him. Now, that brings us finally to the third truth we want to emphasize here, and that is that it is fruit that the Spirit produces, therefore, only in Christians. Only in Christians. What we're saying here is that, that only born-again individuals can yield the fruit that is spiritual and unique to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit indwells them. To say that another way, unless an individual is born again, he or she will not, indeed cannot, produce this kind of fruit. There's a parallel thought to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. You, I'm sure, know this. It's familiar to all of us, a familiar passage. Paul says there that the Word of God itself is only spiritually discerned. And this means that the words of the Bible are produced by the Spirit of God and therefore is our spiritual, their spiritual truth that is discernible and appropriated by those who have the Spirit in them. Now, I want to prove this to you from the context. You'll notice that in Galatians 5.22, the very first phrase, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is, you'll notice that the verse begins with a contrast, but the fruit of the Spirit is. And to discover what Paul's contrasting the fruit of the Spirit with, we we have to find our way back to verse 16, where it's said in the flow of an argument. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Now, we see here that there are only two different sources, each producing its own kind of fruit in an individual. One source Paul calls the flesh. 
and the other he calls the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 makes it quite clear that one has, to, one has nothing to do with the other but are diametrically opposed to each other. He describes his opposition in verse 17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit sets, is set against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So there is on the one hand the flesh, and there is on the other hand the spirit two opposite sources in the believer's life that war against each other and will guide the believer to produce very different fruit. Now let's understand briefly these two sources, the fruit unique to them and, and how they operate in the believer's life. We'll start, of course, with the flesh since we go back to verse 16. And I'll give just a summary of what we've already said about the flesh in greater, uh, greater detail in these past weeks. You might remember, if you've been with us, that we argued that the flesh is what Paul calls the old man in Romans 6. It's who we were in our unconverted life. And that old man died and was buried with Christ and rose a new man with Christ. The new man, who we are as converted people, are, uh, uh, is, perfect, is perfect in Christ positionally. You, if you're in Christ, you've received Christ's righteousness, you've received Christ's holiness, and you were justified by God. What happens in conversion is that God then replaces the old man with the new man. Ezekiel 36 describes God's replacing of our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And that's code for a replacement of natures. A depraved nature is replaced with a redeemed nature. Also, our hatred for God is replaced with a love for him. Our darkened minds are replaced with a mind of Christ. Our obligation to sin, together with the inability to obey God with freedom from the bondage of sin and the ability to obey God. We're now new creatures in Christ. Christians now live in a different sphere altogether, a spiritual sphere, not an earthly one. Paul even says so in words that are unmistakable here in Galatians 5, verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We've crucified it. The flesh, that is our depraved condition, died and no longer has control over us. Now having said that, we know that we still fight against the lingering effects of the flesh because our bodies have not yet been redeemed. They will be in heaven, but until then we cannot escape the constant urgings and influences from our flesh that tempt us to have sinful thoughts and passions and desires and even fall back into old sinful habits that satisfy those sinful thoughts and passions. We can resist it, we can fight against it, and we should. And the move, uh, I'm sorry, the more that we mature in Christ, the more, the more often we become better at putting to death the lusts that are generated from this unredeemed part of us. That's 1 Corinthians 9, 25. The New Testament tells us that the flesh is, is one of three very powerful influences in our lives that can tempt us to sin. The other two, of course, being the world and the devil. 
And we dare not underestimate the power of any one of them to influence us, and we should constantly fight against all three. We don't want the flesh to be the source of our fruit-bearing, which is why Paul commands us in Galatians 5 to walk by the Spirit, and you will not satisfy the lust of the flesh. Now that brings us to the Holy Spirit, who is to be the only source of our fruit-bearing. He and his fruit are unique to believers in Jesus Christ. As new creatures in Christ with a new nature and the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can overrule and we can overcome the influences that remain in that unredeemed part of our makeup and walk obediently, practicing the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in us. Those are the three answers to this pressing question that we posed this morning. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit? With those three answers, I want to wind our study down this morning with some of the more important implications that come with them. And the first one is simple, and I mentioned it only in passing a bit ago, and that is this. In order to produce this fruit, you must be born again. If you hope to experience and express true love, true joy, true peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, you must be born again. But wait a minute, I, I know people who are loving. I, I've met plenty of, of gentle people, and there are even cults that, aren't, that are well-disciplined and, and display self-control. And th these people, none of them, is a Christian. How can you say that these fruits are strictly Christian? It's a good question. This is the deceptive thing about counterfeit fruit. It's true that we've all witnessed unbelievers exhibiting fruit that may look like the, 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 the spiritual fruit unique to the Holy Spirit, but looks are deceiving, and this counterfeit display is as different as decorative plastic fruit is from the genuine article. Let me illustrate that another way. There are food products that we buy that have real, 100% pure fruit in them, and they're very different from the chemical makeup of those products that use artificial color and flavor to taste like the real thing. And much of the time, the artificial tastes, well, more appealing to the American palate than the real thing, and that's by design. It smells like the real thing. It looks like the real thing. But it's not the real thing. Just live on it, and over time you'll see by the negative effects that it has on your health that it isn't the same. It's artificial, unhealthy, but it sells. It's more easily manufactured in bulk. It has a much longer shelf life. In the same way, the unregenerate person may produce fruit that looks like the fruit of the Spirit. But it's quite artificial, different by nature. And it has negative effects on one's spiritual health, you can be sure. Now, the fruit produced by the unique and unique to the Holy Spirit is a fruit of a different kind altogether. It is, a diff it is different by nature. We'll bring this out in more detail when we go through each of the fruits that Paul has in his list. But, but Paul is very clear by the grammar of this very phrase that this fruit is unique to the Holy Spirit. And we can also 
argue from nature, I think, that in the same way that a plant or an animal is bound to look and act according to its nature, so are Christians and non-Christians. A sin nature produces fruit that is fallen. It's cursed. It has no enduring quality. But the new nature produces fruit that is new, it's spiritual, it's blessed, it's enduring. If the Holy Spirit changed your nature at conversion, then you are now able to produce fruit that is in keeping with that new nature and with the Spirit's will. Your fruit will complement God's revealed will that we have in the Bible, and it will represent the Lord Jesus Christ fairly and accurately in this world. Second implication is this. The Holy Spirit establishes his fruit in us at the moment of conversion. Paul doesn't tell us this here in this phrase or even in these two verses, but we know it to be true from the teaching of the rest of the New Testament. And you know, beloved, every passage, every verse must bear the entire weight of the Bible. What we're saying is that those who are born again should know and be confident that they have received everything they need for life and godliness at the moment of conversion, the moment that the Holy Spirit made us alive to God. It's a great and blessed truth. There are many in the church who don't seem to know this truth. And they believe that they need to wait for something more, whether some kind of second blessing or some spiritual zapping from God that mystically matures them or, or a word from God that, that he has just for them and nobody else. But Scripture tells us to expect none of these things. The notion that we lack certain resources in Christ at the moment of our conversion and should expect to receive them later in our converted life is simply not true. And it doesn't stop, but it doesn't stop people in the church from using this bit of error as an excuse for their ungodly behavior. There are numerous examples of this, but here are just two that I think are among the most common. I have run across, certainly, these in my ministry. First of all, I don't have enough faith yet. I don't have enough faith yet. Maybe you've heard this one before. It rings out the loudest, of course, from the popular TV faith healers. And those who mistakenly believe that they have the gift of healing people today. And a, a variation of this phrase comes in very handy for them when those who come to them expecting to be healed are not. It's not good for the faith healer's reputation or his business to have people who are not instantly healed by his magical touch. And so he accuses them of not having enough faith. See how easy that is? Very convenient. They have not, en they have not enough faith to receive healing as uh, they escort them out of the auditorium. Well, I'm, I'm not about to be taken in by that stuff, you say. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. It's a relief. But that idea is in, in not having a sufficient amount of faith it's not unique to them, beloved. And it's, and, it's not, and it's found not only in that context. There are plenty of Christians who are under the mistaken impression that they are unable to obey the Lord in some aspect of his will simply because they don't have enough faith yet. Oh, yes. What's interesting to me and, and poses a, diff a difficulty, I think, to this view is why not? It's time for me to ask the why question.
Why wouldn't a Christian have enough faith to obey the Lord in some area of his or her walk? And when would such a believer expect to have enough? And how does he get more? Is it his responsibility to get more? Or does he expect God to give him more in, in time? Now, these questions themselves, I think, bring out the absurdity of the view. I know of no place in the Bible where believers are urged to get more faith or to pray for more faith. More than this, Jesus himself denounced this faulty excuse directly when his own disciples tried using it on him in Luke 17. After Jesus taught them about the precious biblical uh, practice of reconciliation and their responsibility in it, not only to rebuke the person who has sinned against them, but also to forgive that sinning brother when he asks for forgiveness, no matter how many times they say in verse 5, Lord, increase our faith. In other words, we don't have enough faith to do what you're asking. Jesus denounces this excuse, and he assures them that the issue in the Christian life is never whether we have enough faith He tells them, if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could tell this mulberry bush to be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Isn't that interesting? Just that much, and you could do great things. It's a figure, of course. If it were an issue of quantity of faith, then all one would need would be that small amount. But the truth is, believers have all the faith they need. The issue is whether they're going to exercise it and focus it on the correct object. And that would be Jesus and his word. Jesus finished his discourse here in Matthew, uh, Luke 17, rather, with them on this, with an illustration, you may remember, of the unworthy slave who simply needed to obey his master. The issue is not, do I have enough faith, but am I willing to trust the Lord's will at this moment and do what he says regardless of the consequences or how I feel about it? So, we don't want to be saying we don't have enough faith. Having faith that is not strong or weak and needs to be strengthened is different. That is not a quantity phrase. That means that it's not been placed on the right object, which is why it's weak. The other popular excuse is this. I'm just not ready to obey. That's it. How can you fault me for that? I hear this more than the first excuse in my circles. A professing believer is confronted by his concerned Christian brother about his sinful handling of an issue and is offered to offered help to repent and overcome it and turn and and he says to his fellow Christian I'm just not ready yet now this excuse is telling you think of a person's attitude and God does not take lightly to it I think of the many times when I've gotten this response by someone in my counseling room I guess I'm just not there yet pastor now what else does a believer need to have that God has not already given him to obey his will the moment he knows it. No one's been able to tell me that yet. Of course, in this context that I'm speaking about, the person is not really claiming that he, he needs anything but more time to wallow in his sinful response. 
For example, a believer refuses to forgive his offending brother in Christ, and he explains, I guess I'm not ready to forgive yet. Should we think that there's something more that this Christian needs to receive from God in order to produce the fruit of repentance? How long should it take for us to forgive someone the moment he or she asks for it? An hour? A day? A week? A month? Shouldn't it be immediate? And if one doesn't forgive right away, he sins against his brother or sister. Related to this is one excuse for not being ready to obey, and that is that the offended brother is still angry with his offender. A brother who knows that someone has something against him goes as the Lord has commanded him, and he goes to that person in the church and he asks for his forgiveness for committing a grievous sin against him, but the offended does not forgive. And the Christians, or the Christian in this situation, refuses to, to forgive. And those who do that, oftentimes they do it because they're not done being mad. Do you see that? It's, a, it's such a self-indicting act when you think about this. What would prevent a professing Christian to continue in his anger after his offender comes to him and asks for forgiveness? To deny forgiveness until I am sufficiently satisfied in my anger really betrays me as a, with a selfish attitude. It doesn't mean I'm ready to trust right away. That has to be earned. But forgiveness should be immediate. And those who do this get even madder at the thought that anyone would rob them of their right to enjoy being mad for a time. Paul's words in Ephesians 4, 30 to 32, I think are appropriate here. Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander must be removed from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Beloved, those of us who are born again shouldn't think that we lack any spiritual resource before we can produce the kind of fruit that God expects of us here in Galatians 5. 22 and 23 especially. We can obey God and produce righteous works for the cause of Christ immediately upon our conversion and immediately when the situation calls for it. We only get better with time. If the fruit of the Spirit comes with the indwelling Holy Spirit in conversion, then every believer has the fruit of the Spirit and can practice it. We receive everything we need, again, for life and godliness. It's not it, 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 it's, it's not complicated. It's now simply a matter of cultivating it. Number three, third implication, every Christian has the fruit of the Spirit in its totality. And not only do we, each of us possess all the f- nine fruits that Paul mentions here, but each of us will exhibit them, of course, to different degrees. It's incorrect to think that no believer has all the fruit of the Spirit. Now, that may be true of spiritual gifts, Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 that the Spirit 
the Spirit apportions them as he wills, one having this set of gifts and another having that set of gifts. And this is not true, though, with the fruit of the Spirit. You might think of the fruit of the Spirit as a unified conglomerate of spiritual fruits that are in, inseparable. Again, grammar is our friend here. Notice that the text uses the singular fruit instead of the plural fruits. In order to speak of this conglomerate of fruit, many fruits that, that come together in a cluster. And I believe Paul uses the singular here to show solidarity between each individual fruit that we receive. Now, he doesn't speak the same way about the deeds of the flesh. He simply says the deeds of the flesh. In that case, he speaks of deeds that is many works of the flesh. And it is not possible, really, that any one person, any one unbeliever, could actually practice all of these vices. But one believer can exhibit every one of the fruit of the Spirit and needs to. A.W. Pink explains it in his commentary very well this way. He says, quote, in the use of the singular number, the fruit, rather than fruits of the Spirit, emphasis is placed upon the unity of his operations, producing one harmonious whole. In contrast, from the products of the flesh, which ever tend to discord and chaos, end quote. And he uses the illustration of a flower to, de uh, to demonstrate this point. The virtues, he argues, which are the fruits, are not like many flowers in a bouquet, you know, in a <clears throat> put together in a bouquet, but rather they're more like the many and variegated petals of one lovely flower that exhibit different shades and forms of it. He also points to the rainbow as another illustration. That makes sense. It's one, yet in it all the primary colors are beautifully blended together. Pink continues, quote, These graces which the Spirit imparts to a renewed soul are distinguishable, but they are inseparable. In some believers, one grace predominates more than another, as meekness in Moses, patience in Job, love in John, yet all are present to some extent, uh, and some extent active, end quote. Let me say number four, that it is totally impossible, it's another implication, for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ with his new nature and the indwelling Holy Spirit not to be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. Impossible. There is no such thing as a fruitless Christian Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Not only that, but believers will exhibit this fruit more regularly as they mature. We might summarize what we're saying with these cautionary statements. If you are a genuine Christian, you will bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. A lack of righteous fruit in your life would indicate that something is wrong with your walk. A consistent total lack of righteous fruit would cause you to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. The fifth and final implication is this. It actually comes off this last cautionary statement, and it leads me to say that we believers should be concerned not only 
<clears throat> over a consistent absence of fruit in our lives, but sinful fruit. <clears throat> we should be concerned about that. We hinted at this when we talked about the flesh, that part of our humanness that still needs to be redeemed and how it's a powerful influence in the believer's life that tempts him. <clears throat> we must constantly beat it down. Don't cater to it. Put ourselves under or put ourselves under its control. Rather, we must walk according to what the Spirit has given us in the Bible and be quick to repent and ask God for forgiveness for those times of sinful fruit, and then train ourselves never to produce that specific fruit again. Here is where we need to keep a constant check on our souls, beloved. What are the sinful fruits in your life? This is what the text asks us. What are you, what are you doing about it? Are you contrite over it enough to repent and change? It's one thing to be caught up in a life-dominating sin and hate it, and mourn over it, and seek wisdom and counsel on how to overcome it. Praise God if that's you. All that is pleasing in the sight of God. But it's quite another thing to do nothing about it and have a cavalier attitude about it that can be telling of, of other disastrous things. Well, Lord willing... We'll finish our introduction next time with a more in-depth look at the Spirit's fruit and this time our responsibility to cultivate it. Our Father in God, we are grateful for your word to us, a word which came from your mouth and now we hold in our hands that we might read, that we might study with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, that we might come and appropriate this truth in our lives so we could be a blessing to those in the church, that we could even be a blessing to those outside as we live Christ to them and show them the love of Christ in the gospel. Oh God, we do pray that you will, that you will find us rejoicing in your truth, studying it and ingesting it, embodying it, that we might encourage and that we might evangelize. We pray then in this hour as we depart and go our separate ways, you would even now strengthen us by your grace in, in, in the future labors this week as we produce more of the fruit of the Spirit for your good, glory and for your honor and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.